Well, grace, mercy, and the peace of our God be with you this day as we conclude our Advent season and prepare for Friday and Saturday and the celebration of the birth of Jesus. The King is coming. That's what we've been planning and anticipating and talking about for the last well, three weeks. And today we arrive at just the the precipice, the threshold of the celebration of his arrival. When there's one who is going to be the leader, the ruler, the king, there's desired characteristics, right? We know what we would be looking for, charisma and confidence. People are drawn towards strong leaders. It's true in business, in various organizations in government. Just take a person who's a, a leader in our world today. Elon Musk has 63 million Twitter followers. That's of like a month ago, so it's probably 70 million by now. Who knows? And he can tweet something and the stock market responds. We've seen this, right? He can say, buy this cryptocurrency and people go and do it. The guy could manipulate the market and probably make billions of dollars, and probably the SEC would be after him more than they already are for whatever he does with Tesla. He's influential. We understand what influential people look like. They accomplish great things. They're often driven, focused, powerful, you know, singular focus to accomplish great things. It's what we're looking for in leadership. Then there's children of accomplished people who sometimes live up to that status or expectation and sometimes not so much. This week I got the story. It was uh, in front of me on this sports app that I scroll through um, periodically of Charlie Woods. Have you seen him? Charlie Woods is the son of Tiger Woods. And I saw a video of how he plays golf. And he is the spitting image of his dad on the golf course. Same clothes, same style, same walk, same swing, same pick up the driver and put, you know, after the swing, just the way he holds the club, he holds himself. He just like, he has watched his dad. And kids do that, right? Imitate. But this goes far beyond imitation. This is like duplication of his father. It was said that he would be the next Tiger Woods. But then it's been argued that's a whole lot of pressure on this young man. He was 12 years old. And this weekend is playing in the PNC Championship Pro-Am at age 12 along with his dad. Twins. Sometimes there are great expectations placed on people or placed on circumstances or in various ways in our lives we might face great expectations. For God's people in the day of Micah, expectations were actually pretty limited. Expectations were limited because Israel and Judah were being humbled by their enemies. This was not a good time among God's people. Micah lived at the same time as Isaiah the prophet. 
Exile was imminent. Leaders had let them down. Prophets were promising destruction. What kind of expectations would we have if exile was in the forecast? If you've been watching the news for the weather lately, you know that rain is supposed to be coming. And so, you know, with the coming rain, we understand what that's going to look like. Maybe our plans change. Maybe the things that we'd hoped to do in this place where it hardly ever rains, we're going to have to put off till next week, right? When the expectation and the forecast is for exile, and as a nation, you're going to be carried off to Babylon, well, you don't put it off for next week. You wonder if it ever happens. Their great expectations were limited for the present anyway, but for a future. People were hoping for change. There were promises God had made and was continuing to make through these prophets. It wasn't all doom and gloom. It wasn't all exile and destruction. There was hope. There were threads of hope in these prophecies. Things Isaiah said that gave the people hope for the future. Things that Micah said that gave people hope for change, for expectation, for a future, for greatness. These are the people of promise of covenant, of a relationship with God that their neighboring nations didn't have. The the nations surrounding them, even Babylon, even those powers that were arising, even Egypt, when they'd been there, these are not nations that had this relationship with the God of the universe. They had gods. And those gods periodically were proven to be idols and nothing more. So these are people of promise who still are hanging on to expectations. We're somewhat used to promises not being kept. Family members or friends sometimes let us down. The job opportunity that was supposed to be everything you might have wanted didn't really work out exactly as it was promoted. Politicians can make promises. And, well, then they have to work with other politicians who made other promises. And sometimes they work together, but oftentimes not so much. So we're used to promises not being kept, but God's promises will be kept. So even in a time of turmoil, great expectations for God's faithfulness would still be there, right? We're hanging on to promises of God. Even at a time that's not the easiest that we've experienced. There's been loss, there's been turmoil, there's been hardship in our lives and around the world. And it's not just pandemic reasons. It's all kinds of reasons. And we're clinging to the promises that God has made for us. We're holding on to that hope that we have, that one would be coming. So where would you expect a king? The prophecy of Micah is somewhat surprising because our expectations would be of a royal birth in a capital city. We'd be no different from 
the magi who come later? Or, or the religious elite, the leaders in Israel who were expecting great things to be popping up in the capital or among the clans and the families of prominence, right? And we'd probably be no different, but here comes Micah's prophecy. We'd expect, surrounded by security, but Michael's, Micah's prophecy placed the one who was to come among humble origins. Here's what he said, beginning in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. That would be like saying, oh, you little backwater town. Somewhere, you know, from here we might look out toward the Central Valley or to Nevada. Right. Or to, you know, the flyover country, the Midwest. And there, there's good people there. I've lived there. <laughs> I'm from there. But we might think of other parts of this state or other states as we think of something similar to what Micah is saying. You're too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. O little town of Bethlehem. O little town of Bethlehem, you are going to be the birthplace of the ruler. Bethlehem is an interesting town. Name. House of bread. Is literally what that translates to. House of bread. The one who is going to be the bread of life was going to be born in the house of bread. David's city. So Micah is basically saying, God's going to do it all over again. Because David was unexpected. Samuel shows up to anoint the next king, and he shows up at Jesse's house like, you got some sons, right? Oh, sure, I got sons. He starts parading the sons out, and then, you know, little shepherd boy David is just an afterthought. And one by one they go by, no, not him, no, no, no. You got any more? Oh, yeah, that's right, there is one kind of forgot about him. <laughs> Not quite, but. And in comes David, who was anointed to be the king. God's going to do it again. The humble, the second thought, the unexpected is what we should expect. But it's hard to expect the humility of Christ. Theological terms, we talk about the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. Not humiliation the way that we use the word often, right? Oh, I was so humiliated when I went to the party and I was wearing the wrong thing. I was so humiliated because, you know, news that I had hoped would be private was public, and there it was. The humiliation of Christ is different from that. It's not embarrassment. It's that he went from... Son of God, second person of the Trinity, in glory and power and authority, reigning to the incarnation, to taking on flesh, to being one of us, to being contained in humanity, 
in the finite yet infinite. So he had to set aside his glory, his authority, his power. Because the finite human nature couldn't contain those things. That's the humiliation of Christ. And it was promised from long ago. The seed of woman, Genesis chapter 3. The, the humiliation of Christ was already understood and thought of from Genesis 3 when it was promised that one would come to be born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law. Which it talks about elsewhere. The humiliation of Christ meant he would be incarnate. That he would be found in fashion as a man, that he would take on the humble nature of the servant. That he would be obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's what Philippians 2 describes. Not born of royal origins. Not born of royal family. In Luke chapter 1, we heard about Mary going to Elizabeth's house. Mary just picked seemingly at random, right? What qualified her? This young woman from Nazareth, from Galilee, far from Bethlehem, really far from royalty. The engaged fiancé use a term that's more familiar to us, the betrothed of a carpenter. Who? And this is what she says. He, being God, has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. The promise was made that he would be born in a small town, born of a virgin, and Jesus took on our humanity he redeemed us by his sacrifice, by his death on a cross that was for us. The humility of Christ was for you and for me. He had to be one of us to redeem us. But meekness doesn't mean weakness. It's easy to assume, to overlook the quiet ones, to not have high expectations on the meek, those who do what they need to do in a quiet or reserved way, to expect little of the limited. And the cycle of poverty exists because there's not a lot of expectation where there's not a lot of opportunity. And so it would be easy to have limited expectations on one born in Bethlehem, born to some peasant carpenter who would be traveling there. But greatness can and often does have humble origins. It's a common story among professional athletes, people who will be on TV later today, running backs and linemen and receivers for these NFL teams who are making millions of dollars to play a kid's game, who grew up raised by a single mom or a grandma who didn't have a lot of opportunity, didn't have a lot of hope, but had some skill and played every day. Or those NBA guys, too, similar story. Didn't have much, but they had a basketball. 
They learned how to dribble it and shoot it. And now they've achieved great things. But it's not just pro-athletes. Abraham Lincoln was born in a town called Hodgenville, Kentucky. It would take some effort to find it on the map. But one who is revered among the presidents of this nation was born in a small town. And I read that Elon Musk once had a job as a janitor. Greatness can have humble origins. Not everybody starts out flying. The promise of this prophecy that a ruler would come from humble origins born in Bethlehem and Jesus fulfilled all that Micah foretold. This is what we believe. Our ruler reigns. The one who was promised through the lips of Isaiah, through the writings and prophecy of Micah is our ruler and he is the real, the real ruler. Israel and Judah divided kingdom, had a succession of kings. And you can read through Chronicles and Kings, and periodically there's one who's considered a good guy, a good king. But most of the time, meh, like our politicians today, eh, many of whom are like that. But this is the real ruler the one who was promised, who would rule with compassion, in perfection, who would do it right. For the world, the promised one would bring reconciliation. See, all the leaders, the presidents, the kings that have come and gone haven't brought restoration, reconciliation. This world is full of brokenness, of turmoil, of conflict, and none of these earthly rulers can overcome those problems that we experienced. For, it, for Israel, the promised ruler would bring positive change, and for us, the Savior and King. Probably not in ways that we would expect either. In ways that we would anticipate, we have the benefit of 2,000 years of hindsight. Because we celebrate Christmas and we understand what this is all about, Charlie Brown. We understand it's the birth of the Savior. We understand and we know because we've heard the story. We understand and we know by faith that these things that were promised came to be in Jesus. So the Savior and King was born for us. The real ruler came and he is triumphant. Here's words from verse 4 of Micah chapter 5. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. The shepherd is from the shepherd's city. And he stands in the strength and the majesty of the Lord. He's not there on his own power. It's not some person born who achieved greatness, who took over and became the ruler. It's the one who stands in the Lord's power and majesty. 
It's not just for Jerusalem or Israel or Judah or that region, but it's to the ends of the earth. And they shall dwell secure. Do you have security? Do you have peace? That's the last part of this promise. He is our peace. That's in the first part of verse 5. Sometimes we can feel peaceful. It's fleeting though, isn't it? There's concerns, there's problems, there's trouble. But he is our peace. The gift of Jesus for us is the gift of peace with God. The gift of peace in our time and the gift of peace for eternity. The humble king, born in Bethlehem, was born for us to bring us security and peace and hope and joy now and forever. The king is coming. Amen. Now may that peace rule in our hearts and minds throughout our celebration of his birth. Amen.